I've been, you know, very fortunate to partner in another organization and those partners have all kind of poured into me and showed me this is what we need to do with manufacturing to make it more sustainable, to be able to do this, to be able to do that. And so it's really just looking for people that have done really well, that are a few steps ahead of you to learn from them. But I also believe in paying it back the other direction. Welcome everyone to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Welcome back, everyone, to actually our 50th episode of the Do Well and Do Good podcast. I cannot believe that we've had 50 episodes so far. Time has absolutely flown by. And I want to just tell you how grateful I am to have this platform to be able to not only share these amazing stories, but also to help you both increase your income and your impact. So thank you to everyone who has listened to even a single episode of the podcast. And I really look forward to continuing to bring you more content, more inspiring stories like that of today's guest, Amber Runyon. Amber is a speaker, nurse, candle maker, founder and visionary of Legacy and 11th Candle Co., Amber began her journey as a nurse and went on to do medical missions in Ethiopia. Now, while she was there, horrifically, she watched two young girls be sold into sex trafficking in broad daylight, a story that you'll hear in more detail during this interview. Now, in that moment, Amber decided that she didn't want to live in a world where little girls and boys could be bought and sold. So in 2015, she founded her nonprofit Legacy as well as 11th Candle Co. with the mission to redeem, restore, and empower those who are vulnerable to human trafficking and exploitation. Three years later, the organization continues to offer women employment, PTSD, and trauma counseling, as well as a safe place to be themselves. In this episode, Amber will talk about why traditional mission trips actually can hurt the very people that they're intended to help and why it's so important to figure out how to create sustainable change in these communities rather than just putting a Band-Aid over the problem. Amber has also been generous enough to create a promo code for anyone interested in trying out some of 11th Candle Co.'s amazing candles. So after the show, be sure to head to 11thcandleco.com and use the promo code DOGOOD. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amber Runyon. Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm thrilled to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's dive straight into your story. Could you share a little bit about what life was like for you growing up and what eventually led you to nursing? Yeah, so I um, grew up in foster care, didn't get the best start to life, was kind of looking at when I got out of high school, like, what can I do that will make me money? Traditional college didn't seem like a good route for me. One, I don't like that sort of stuff. Like, who wants to do 500 math classes that actually don't matter? (laughs) Um, I saw a billboard one day that said, become a nurse in like 16 months or something. I was like, I think I could be a nurse. Um, so I signed up for nursing classes. Turns out, um, I was just kind of really naturally good at it. And it was something that I really enjoyed. That's amazing. So then how did the medical missions in Ethiopia start? Yeah. So I knew that kind of as a, as a young child and into like middle and and high school that 
I wanted to be able to give back. Like if I could get out of my current situation that like I wanted to be able to give back. And as a nurse, it's kind of this weird thing. Like you just want to go serve and help people. And so it just naturally seemed like the best thing to do to do would be to do international medicine. Um, and I kind of always wanted to travel. And so I started my very first trip was in Haiti. Um, and then kind of hit a couple of different countries in Africa and down to Honduras as well. Just kind of, kind of fell in love with this whole concept that like, it's a whole world. Like it's more than just the United States that we belong to the entire world. And so that's really kind of where my love for kind of crossing those different barriers. How do you think that your experience in foster care growing up played into, you know, your drive to give back? Did that have a big piece to play? Yeah, sure. I think, again, I think like I always had this like thing in the back of my mind or this agreement with the universe or God or whatever, like, look, if you get me out of here and out of this situation, I can kind of make it on my own. Like my deal back to you is that I'll do good. When you arrived in Ethiopia, what was it like for you just taking in that culture, you know, what life is like for people there, you know, for our listeners who maybe might not be familiar with what life is like for, for people in that country. Could you just kind of paint the picture for us? So by that point, I traveled to Kenya and Honduras and Haiti a number of times. And so I was pretty used to extreme poverty. And so for Ethiopia, it wasn't, it wasn't like this eye-opening experience similar to like Haiti was, but to somebody that had never traveled before, the moment that you got off the plane, it is just utter poverty everywhere. I mean, sure, there are pockets of wealth, but I mean, extremely small pockets of wealth, and you have to try really hard to get there. And so, you know, you kind of get the, you kind of get off the plane, and you go right outside the airport, and there are little kids that are begging you, A-U, 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 Ferengi, 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 candy, candy, money, money. Um, and that's kind of the, your entire trip is that, that you're just immersed with poverty. Everywhere you look, it is just utter poverty. People without shoes, you kid, little kids running around in the streets, you're just surrounded by it. And so kind of as you continue to go back, I mean, I've been back to Ethiopia countless times and it doesn't become normal ever. Like every trip I come back, you're kind of changed and very different, but you begin to understand what poverty means uh, and, and kind of understanding what how they go about living their lives. And I was very intentional in my time there, like learning about how they live and learning about what is it like to not have any electricity and what is it like to not have running water and how far do they have to walk to get their water and how far do the kids have to walk to get to school. And so it was just really kind of learning that culture. Um, I mean, I've been numerous times to Ethiopia specifically um, and I still don't understand a fraction of their, of their culture or really what it's like. I mean, and that's me being very intentional and immersing myself in that culture. It's just so far removed from the the privilege that we're really used to in this country. And I think, you know, until you've seen it with your own eyes, it's probably hard to even really comprehend what that level of extreme poverty is even like. And even seeing it with your own eyes, it's hard to like, right? because then in 14 days, 16 days, I get back on a plane and I'm, you know, 17, 18, 20 hours, I'm back in the States, right back to my privilege. It's hard to have that juxtaposition of like, wow, I was literally just in an incredibly extreme, extreme poverty and now I'm in the, the D.C. airport and it happens that quick. And so it's, it, it is kind of like readjust your life back to that. So tell me more about your experience doing nursing there. What were those missions like? What were you doing? Yeah, so I started out um, with an organization, International Medical Relief, down in Haiti. And I just kind of kept going on trips because I just, I really thoroughly enjoyed getting to, I love different cultures and I love different learning experiences. Um, and then I kind of got really intentional in Ethiopia and tried to make sustainable change. So the problem with short-term mission trips of any sort, um, I'm actually totally against them now. 
is that it all it damages the community. It doesn't sustain it. So you have people that are coming in that are literally taking people's jobs for 14, 16, 18 days. You, we go in, we create the, something that's not sustainable. So you're just passing out like multivitamins. You're passing out Tylenols. You're maybe bandaging a wound that, that is kind of sustainable. And so really what I believe in now, having like lived through all of it, is really like long-term sustainable care. And so over in Ethiopia, we begin to run this and working with the local physicians and working with the local hospitals and creating sustainable change. So we would do trainings instead of hosting medical clinics where people would walk for thousands of miles and we still wouldn't be able to fix them. Um, and so we started doing like trainings and we started working with the local physicians and bringing in different specialists that could work with for you know, 14, 16 days, work with these specific doctors to really begin to hone their skills and bring in nurses to work with and help them with their charting systems and things like that, instead of running pop-up medical clinics that do absolutely no good. So really, it's about equipping the people there locally to be able to help each other, help their own communities and providing that training rather than doing the actual work. Am I understanding that right? That's correct. Because, because you go into a village and you you take over all the all those nurses and doctors. Like that's their jobs. Is you're literally just ripping away from them for sixteen days. Wow. So, I mean, I think that it's it's a common thing you see, right? You know, people taking these sorts of mission trips. You know, in college or or whatever. And it's it's almost like it's more of a feel good thing for you than it is an actual benefit for the people. So I guess what advice would you give to someone who is interested in making an impact in, you know, a country like that, you know, outside of doing those sort of mission trips? Sure. So I can tell you when it changed for me. So I would lead medical teams. So I'm talking like I would be ahead of 25 to 50 people depending upon where we went in different countries and all that, but usually about 25 people or so. And of them would be physicians. And, and so, and it costs thousands of dollars per person. So you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to get there to run these clinics and so on and so forth. And I remember standing in Ethiopia, this is what changed it for me when, it, when I was like, whoa, we have to do something sustainable. I remember standing in Ethiopia, you're exhausted, it's hot, there's like people everywhere. And I remember watching a guy go to the pharmacy, pick up his worming, like it's a, like it's abendazole, so like an anti-worming medicine. And then go right over to the water, which is dirty water, and take that medicine. Right. The medicine that's giving him the worms, I'm sure. And I was like, what are we doing? I mean, I literally remember being like, whole, I mean, I just, I just stood there and was like, what are we doing? Like, and so that for me was when I was like, okay, we have to look at how to do more sustainable stuff. But really what, what shifted for me was I looked at how do we build up the community. So I kind of started going away from the medical stuff and started really looking at like the community and how do we do microfinancing and how do we work with, you know, the children in the community and how to, and so that they're not dependent upon us um, as foreign aid, but we can really begin to partner with them. So I think so often we make other countries depend upon this foreign aid instead of coming alongside them and saying, okay, how can we help equip you? How can we educate you? And honestly, how can they educate us? Because oftentimes people go into these other countries with kids that have never built more than a matchbox and matchbox car and want to build like a school. And so it just meets ill-equipping with projects that are halfway done with nothing that, that actually gets done. And so it's really, my advice to them would be, how do you sustainably change your community? And here's the thing about that. It's not glamorous at all because you don't go in and whip up schools. It takes a long time and it takes a lot of money and takes a lot of planning. 
And so where the feel good trips are easy is that like, it's like, Oh, I can go and I can snap a few pictures with some Brown kids and come back and feel really good about myself. Cause we've built this school. But the truth is the school never ever gets touched again because there's no more funds. There's no more anything. And so you, so you slapped up four walls. It's absolutely useless. And you took away jobs from people in the community. How about you raise funds and allow the people in the community to have jobs to build that school? I literally could go on about this for like 70 years. I Oh my gosh. I can imagine. Well, it's such a unique perspective. Cause look, I mean, I'm sure the intentions of these people are good, right? My intention was good when I went. Exactly. You know, you're, you're, everybody's intentions are good, but you, we have to stop and really look at sustainable change. The same thing in the United States of America. The reason that we have not eradicated poverty, the reason that we've not eradicated uh, child homelessness, the reason we haven't eradicated human trafficking is because we're not looking at the full picture. We're just looking at the mercy piece or the piece where we're pulling them out of the situation instead of really focusing on why do we have these situations to begin with, which is the hard part. And nobody wants to do it because it's really hard. Yeah, it's, it's about empowering people from the ground up rather than just kind of slapping a Band-Aid on it, it sounds like. It, one thing you mentioned, which I'm, I'm curious about because I've heard this term before, you mentioned microfinancing. Could you explain what that is and how it helps, how it works? Yeah, so over in Ethiopia, like specifically where we are, what we've done is partnered with a co-op of women, so 16, 18 women are in this co-op, who collectively manage different loans. So what we do is we kind of like match their loans. And so... Let's say that there's 16 people in there. They put their own money in and then we match their funds. And so then, then a woman has to come to, this is probably one of my favorite stories. A woman has to come to the co-op with a business plan. So I'll tell you one of like a specific uh, situation. So we had a woman who, who had a laundry business. And so she would go around and collect everybody's laundry and then bring it back to her house and then wash it and then go re-deliver it. But what was hard is that she didn't have like a faucet. So she'd have to go get water, bring it back, go get. And so she wasn't really efficient and she really couldn't do that much laundry. So she came to the co-op and she said, hey, I want to put in a running water, like a faucet. I can't remember how many US dollars it was. I think it was like 50 bucks, maybe 75 bucks to put in this faucet. So she was able to put in this faucet. And not only did she grow her business because then people dropped their clothes off to her and she had running water, but she's now employing women. So she took this small loan, but she has to pay it back. And so then once she pays it back to the co-op, once she pays the loan plus interest back to the co-op, then that's more money the co-op has to loan more money out to more women within the community. So the community is like a very like woman-oppressed community. And so you have a whole bunch of these women who are widowers or have left their abusive husbands or whatever. And so it's really raising up this community of women to be strong and independent by way of doing financing. So micro meaning little, and then loans are, are just the way that it kind of returns back. And so the community knows, look, if I don't pay back my loan, then that means one, one other person can't get her loan. And I think one of the most eye-opening things in, in that story is, is how little money it really takes to make such a massive impact in someone's life and the trickle-down effect you know, that, that will happen for her children and, and the rest of her family and, and the women that she's now able to employ. I mean, it's easy to feel you know, here in the United States like, I don't make enough money to give back. You know, I, I can't donate thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars or whatever, but only $50 was able to transform what this woman was able to do for herself and her family. And so I think that it's such a, a powerful reminder that, you know, you can start small, you know, start wherever you are and still make a massive impact. Absolutely. 
I think that people miss that so so much. They think that if you don't start this huge nonprofit and for-profit and travel over to Africa and work here, that you're not making an impact. But the truth is, is that it's just really small things that add up that make an impact. But when we don't do any small things, that's when we see the negative impact of that. Tell me about this experience you had, this just life-altering really experience of watching these two little girls get sold into slavery. You know, Tell me that story. How did you feel? What really happened for you in that moment? Yeah, we were kind of riding around um, the village, which was not, it's not an uncommon thing, going from this meeting to that meeting to this meeting to that meeting. And I just happened, I mean, there's so much going on. Like there's a million cars. I mean, it's a very populated country, even out where we are, which is kind of a rural area. It's still overly populated. And so there's lots of cars, lots of noise, lots of people walking. And so it's hard to like focus in on one thing because there's just like so much going in around you. Plus nobody's speaking your language and you're trying to make sure that people understand where you are and that you're safe. And so I remember kind of like just like drifting off into this like zone in that, like I saw a guy with a stick and he was kind of like leading and it was almost like cattle. Like if you had a cow and you didn't want it to move outside of where it needed to walk, you kind of nudge it with a stick so that it knows where it's walking. And I thought, wow, what is he leading through the middle of this town? That, That seemed odd to me. And so then we, kept driving and I could, I could see a little bit closer and traffic there is literally like you go two feet, you stop for 20 minutes, you go two feet. <laughs> so you're not really moving at a, at a pretty fast pace there. And so I remember seeing what it was and it was two little girls. And then as we got kind of a little bit closer, I can see that they were blindfolded and I, I stopped my translator and I was like, I like tapped him on his shoulder cause he was up a seat for me. And I was like, Hey, what are they doing over there? And he was like, Oh, they're being sold. And I was like, what? And I thought, well, this is a communication barrier. So I asked him again, like, so what are they doing? And he's like, they're being sold. And I'm like, what's being sold? And he's like, the children. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he said, the children are being sold. And I still was like, not comprehending it or like too much for my little mind to like wrap around. Talking about it so casually, just telling you like that. And that's exactly how he spoke about it. And he said, and then he finally said, they're being sold for sex. They're blindfolded so they can't see where they're going. And I was like, what? Like it's the middle of the day. And so what I have since then, I've obviously learned a lot. I visited probably over in Ethiopia, I visited probably 15 or 20 different different brothels in the middle of the day, some at night. Like I've done like a extensive amount of like understanding over there. It's just a very common, very matter of fact thing over there. It's the same thing in the States, just is hidden way better in the States. And so I was like, what do, you, what do you mean they're being sold? And so like, he like went on to explain to me, and that was like the first introduction kind of that over in a third world country of like, wait a second, like what's happening? Um, and so I kind of came back to the States and began to learn here and that, that Columbus is the fourth largest for human trafficking. Um, and so I was like the same reality over in Ethiopia is the same thing here. Unless we force ourselves to see it because we get to live in these little privileged bubbles. Um, unless we force ourselves to see it, it doesn't become a reality for us. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm from Ohio as well, and I've I've heard that statistic, and it's shocking because it it isn't something that you see or something that is so you know there on the surface for anyone to uncover. But if you do even the smallest amount of research, you realize that it's a massive problem here in the United States, really everywhere. But the fact that you know you you witnessed that happening just in the middle of the day, and and everyone around them you know knows what's going on. I mean. I just can't even begin to imagine. I don't think I took a breath while you told that story. Obviously, anyone would see this and be 
just devastated. I mean, massively horrified, but you know, you actually turned it and, and took that devastation and made it into action. So you knew you wanted to do something. I mean, what were your next steps? How did you begin to educate yourself and figure out how you could help? Yeah. So I really started looking at like, obviously, like I had this commitment to Ethiopia, right? I had like gone there a million times. I know all the people I'm like, you know, I like literally am one of the very few white people that go to that specific area because it's a very worn torn area. So it's pretty unsafe. Um, but I was like committed to these people. I knew all the kids. I know like, I like go into town and everybody in town's like, Oh, hi, Amber. Like, like, and so this, these become your people. Right. And so I was like, okay, how can we really work and help over there? But like, I also need to take care of where I'm at, right? Because I firmly believe that like your calling, your mission, whatever word you want to use is where your two feet are, right? And so whether that means that it's in Ethiopia when I'm in Ethiopia or whether it means that I'm in Columbus, Ohio. And so I really felt this like urge to serve both, both places. And so when I looked at human trafficking, because that's obviously like what just busted my eyes open, I looked in for specifically for Columbus, like where, how do we become a generation that goes from rape to redeemed? right? Which is a pretty big spectrum. And like, how do we go about that? And so what I did was I started looking at human trafficking and all the different layers of human trafficking. And so there needs to be like addiction recovery and there needs to be housing and there needs to be counseling and there needs to be all these different things. And what I really, and every day I'm still learning. So I'm by no means like an expert in this, but I began to see was this trend of when they got to employment, nobody would hire them, right? They have a million felonies, they like not a million, but a number of felonies, right? They have felonies. They have issues with authority. They don't have a work record. They, and so what I began to see was like everywhere, like, it's like, they like get, they get recovered, they get housing, they get all these different things and they get to employment. And it's like this like dead end road. And are those the felonies? I mean, are, are those typically coming out of the experiences they had in trafficking? Yeah. So it's drug related, it's solicitation charges because Ohio is awful and we still have laws that even if they're being trafficked and they get picked up, they still get charged with solicitation, which is absurd. Um, And so, and it's identity theft because they're stealing things to be able to pay their bills. It's, you know, armed robbery because they're running with the wrong crowds. It's drug related. So I looked at that and like where I saw this lane where it just felt like nobody was really running. I don't actually mean nobody, but like, it felt like this like very like broad lane of employment. And so I thought, okay, we'll employ people. So we'll just start a company. Um, I'm a nurse with zero business background. Um, So I Googled cheapest company to start and it was a candle company. And so we started a candle company. Wow. It's absolutely amazing. So were Legacy and 11th Candle Company founded separately or are they more like two parts of the whole? Um, so they were founded separately. So it's Legacy is the nonprofit, 11 Candle Co is a for-profit. Um, and so when we first started, they were joined. And then having figured all this out and how it actually needs to work. And I mean, again, that could be like three podcasts. Um, we decided to separate them, but they still work together. Well, you know, I think what is is so exciting about you know what you're doing is that if you were to only start legacy for example there's only so far you can really go without having financial support you know w- without having a way to actually fund these initiatives on the ground that you're doing and so the fact that you started a for-profit business alongside that you know it means not only can you support 
you know, legacy, but you can also support these women with gainful employment and, and, and you can continue to chase, you know, your, your own dreams as an individual and really help others, you know, while still, you know, still following your, your own dreams. And so I think that it's such a powerful example of how in a certain way you really can have it all. You know, it's not like you need to choose between starting a for-profit business and helping people. You can actually bring your desire to help people and fold it directly into the fabric of that for-profit business. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And everybody always says this to me because I'm confident this will come up is how much of your profit goes to help the people in your program? Well, we're three years old. Um, so there's not a lot of profit. Um, and because we're still growing the business. And so everything that you make, you put right, in, right back into the business. And my hope is someday as the CEO of this company, that I have like $25 million in profits and I have to decide, am I going to buy a really nice yacht or are we going to build communities all over the, all over the United States? And so the answer to that, when everybody hears for profit, they're like, oh, so just lining your pockets full of money. That's not it at all. Nonprofit should be profitable all the same. It's just, it's just what you do with that profit. And so my hope is someday that we have millions and millions and millions of dollars of profit. We have to figure out what we're going to do with it. Tell me about the the women that you hire. How do you typically get connected with them? How do they find you? Yeah, sure. So we get a lot of emails from women who are in our pro or that know women that are in our program. Um, but we also work with a couple of different organizations here locally that kind of have worked with women to get them all set up with all those other areas I talked about with the redemption recovery, with the housing, with all those different things, so that they are job force ready. So when we first started, we would literally take women straight off the street. Um, and I learned very quickly that that is not the most appropriate way to get, to get women, that they actually do need a couple steps before they're employment ready. What we really focus on is creating that space where they can get comfortable being back at work, that they can be comfortable with authority, um, and, that, and that they know that this is a space where they can still continue to grow and heal. You mentioned that you offer grief and PTSD counseling as well to help these women get on their feet. Tell me, how does that work? You know, what, what types of things do you offer these women to help them through just from an emotional standpoint? Yeah, so we work with um, trauma-informed therapists that do specific therapy called EMDR. Um, I would strongly suggest that everybody that's listening go out and learn about that. Um, and so what we do is we, um, nonprofit helps pay for the coaching and counseling. We also um, pay for gym memberships. We also pay for like, nutritional classes. Um, and then we do a lot of like retreats and a lot of different things like that. So for example, in a couple of weeks, our whole team is going down to Florida. Um, one of the companies that we work with has, has donated a house for us to stay in it for a week. Um, and so it's really just taking everybody down for a week and after the holiday season and taking a breather and really just allowing that. I mean, none of them have flown on a plane before. None of them have seen the ocean before. And so it's just giving them these life experiences and allowing them to like take that moment to breathe and to heal and to do those sort of things. What would you say was your biggest challenge in getting your candle company off the ground in the beginning? Um, I have no business background at all. And so people would be like, what's your profit and loss or what's your P&L or what's your revenue? I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Um, so we started with $250 um, and really just grinded and, and bootstrapped our whole way through. So everything was hard. Um, figuring out what products to do and how many SKUs to have. And um, and so I think really it wasn't a support issue. Like it was like we, that's why we've been so successful is because Columbus is a very socially driven community. Um, and so our company has kind of been successful really from the standpoint of like people buying into what we're doing and people really liking our product. And so, I mean, I think it's just starting a business. Starting a business is absolutely no joke. 
How has mentorship played a role for you? I mean, I, I would imagine that in getting over that learning curve, you've had to, you know, reach out for help, you know, get support from other people. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm pretty passionate about mentoring both directions, being mentored and mentoring. Um, and so I just really sought out people that I thought were doing really good jobs and just continued to bug them until they were like, okay, I'll give you 10 minutes of my time or okay, I'll give you 15 minutes of my time. And so I really just was like, okay, this is what I'm working on and this is what I need to understand. And, and still yet yeah, and mentored. Um, I've been you know, very fortunate to partner in another organization and those partners have all kind of poured into me and showed me this is what we need to do with manufacturing to make it more sustainable, to be able to do this, to be able to do that. And so it's really just looking for people that have done really well, that are a few steps ahead of you to learn from them. But I also believe in paying it back the other direction. So mentoring people who are like, I want to start a nonprofit, but I have no idea what to do. And not that I'm an expert by any means, but I'm like, well, here's the attorney that you need to talk to. And here's this person that you need to talk to. Helping them like get a grasp of what it means and that you don't actually have to have like a, you know, a 25 page business plan to start a company. I mean, I think so often we, it's easy to spend so much of your time getting ready to be ready and instead of just jumping in and taking action and, and starting. I don't know how to do the get ready to be ready thing. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes for sure a negative for me. I'm like, oh, we'll just do it. And I just jump in and I'm like, oh crap. Um, so it's a, a good combination of both of like jumping and being ready. Um, but I definitely err on the side of just jump. Like that's my personality. That's just kind of who I am. Um, and so the whole like get ready to be ready thing is I don't fully understand that. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean get ready to be ready? So maybe like I've been planning my nonprofit for three years. Like, well, have you filed yet? No. I'm like, oh, well, no, I didn't even like plan it. I was just like, okay, we're going to start a nonprofit. <laughs> so Exactly. Well, I think you're, I think you're erring on the right side. I mean, I know for me, it's like I have an advertising agency. And if I had known how hard it was going to be, how much was going to be involved, who knows how much harder it would have been for me to just jump in head first. But really, when you just start, you figure it out as you go along. And I truly believe that that is the best way to learn any sort of business, no matter what it is. And and really surrounding yourself with people who can support you and teach you and, and help you to develop and grow. I'm curious... Amber, do you think that your customers, you know, so the, the people who just want candles, right? Do they care about your social mission? Do you think that it influences their buying behavior? Absolutely. I think that we don't sell candles, we sell hope. Um, and so I think the candles is just a byproduct of that. And so I, do I think that there are some consumers that buy our candles because they're 100% soy? Yes, because there are not a lot of companies that use 100% soy. So I think that we have like a small fraction of people that buy our candles just for our candles. Uh, I think though probably 94 98%, I think, probably purchase our candles for the mission. Amber, I definitely want to thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions. And I'd like for you to respond with basically the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Got it. Amber, who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well in your career and achieve financial success? Matt Davis. Who's he? He's one of my partners at Cohatch. Amazing. And then who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and really make an impact? Um, Mulu, which is a little girl over in Ethiopia. I actually saw a the video on your website where you told her story. It's absolutely amazing. Could you just share a, a brief overview of who she is? Yeah. So Mulu is, is kind of who I fell in love with over in Ethiopia and continue to go back to see over and over and over again. Um, and so that was, that's definitely who's shaped 
the majority of my adult life at this point. What's what's her story? I mean, what's her life like over in Ethiopia? She's an orphan over there. Um, and, and kind of, I mean, I just instantly fell in love with her. And I was like, whoa, you belong to me and I belong to you. Um, and so that was kind of like what really just shaped this bond of like, we have to make this community better because in you know 10 years, well, at that point she was, I think she's four or five when I first met her and now she's like nine or 10. And so it was kind of like, I have this much time to improve her community before she, before she grows up. And so I wanted her to live in a better world than she currently lives in. Wow. Talk about a driving motivational force. That's absolutely amazing. Then Amber, when you're having a bad day or you find yourself in a negative headspace, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? Do you have any sort of regular personal development practices? Yeah. So, um, I listen to like a lot of motivational YouTube videos, like every morning, um, while I get ready, I put in my little earbuds and listen to like, um, like you literally just Google like motivational, you know, YouTube. Um, I also really like podcasts. So it's kind of like, just like clearing your headspace, like, and doing those positive affirmations. That's something that I really focus on. Um, and then if I'm just having like a crap day in the middle of the day, like I'll just like watch like cat videos, which I know sounds like, <laughs> but like, it makes you laugh and you're kind of like, okay, my day is not so bad. Totally. I'm a bonafide cat lady. So I totally get you. Well, I do think that though, what you said about the motivational videos and podcasts, you know, just as much as you can fill your mind with positivity, it's going to be so much easier to flip yourself when you do start to get on some, some negative thought patterns or, you know, or start to feel, you know, feel down or, or feel discouraged. And it's such a powerful way to you know, bring yourself back up and to remind yourself of the most effective way to look at a situation in order to make the best of it. So I completely agree with that. Do you have any book that you find yourself recommending to people often? Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Um, Braving the Wilderness is just this example, like this, this book about how do you actually find who you really are. Um, and the only way that you do that is to by, brave the, is like by braving the wilderness. Um, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. And so I like Daring Greatly and Rising Strong and Braving the Wilderness. But I would say Braving the Wilderness is the book that I literally just give everybody. Like, Here you go. You need to read this. Here you go. You need to read this. <laughs> Love it. And then lastly, Amber, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you would give our listeners? Um, you are the only person that you will wake up to every day for the rest of your life. And so if you cannot like yourself, nobody else is going to like you and you're not actually really going to like anybody else. And Amber, as you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the do well and do good challenge. So this is where I encourage our listeners who do want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. Of course, I do know that you'll be nominating Legacy. So could you just share some final words about your organization and also where people can go to donate? So you can go to givetolegacy.org um, or you can go to 11th Candle Co.'s website and then there's a little give tab that will redirect you to that. The whole idea behind that is, is that really with the nonprofit, we're able to explore other chapters or be able to propel ourselves further by being able to provide these different things to the women. And so really, it's just kind of this additional arm to what we're doing good with. And so I think it's really just good to understand that like, we really encourage people to donate $11 a month. Don't give us, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to donate $10,000, I will not cry or lose sleep over it. But we really believe in just people giving small amounts of money. A lot of people giving small amounts of money really helps. And so we really just challenge people to do $11 a month, which is like two Starbucks. And so that just kind of helps us continue to do the work that we want to do and help us open up to other opportunities. 
Does Legacy primarily support the um, the women that you are employing with your candle company or does it also support the people in Ethiopia? It does both. Amazing. And lastly, Amber, before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to connect with you to learn more about 11th Candle Co. and of course, to buy your amazing candles? 11thcandleco.com. Um, if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, you're just going to see like some nature photos and some pictures of my dog. Amber in Runyon. Um, and then for the company, every handles 11th Candle Co. Amber, thank you so much for being here. It's been a lot of fun to have you. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.